How do you teach and support student activism in 2017? Fake news, Black Lives Matter, women's rights. These are just a few of the current issues Andover students are trying to grapple with. Phillips Academy is committed to equity inclusion, youth from every quarter, non-sibi. But how do you uphold these values when it feels like the world beyond our campus bubble is turning into the direct antithesis of everything we try to instill in our community? There are no easy answers. Conversations, however, are happening. Students want to be involved, they have a voice, and we need to listen. Back in April, Andover hosted Stand Up, Student Activism in Independent Schools, a day-long symposium for independent school educators and administrators. One of our presenters was writer, video blogger, and cultural commentator Jay Smooth. Jay grew up in the burgeoning New York hip-hop scene and is the founder of the city's longest-running hip-hop radio program, WBAI's Underground Railroad. Before his presentation, Jay joined Andover faculty member LaShawn Springer to discuss his path from DJ to Pundit, the current state of hip-hop, and how today's students can be supported in their efforts to lead positive change through activism. Hi everyone, my name is LaShawn Springer, uh, here at Phillips Academy with Jay Smooth. Um, here I am an Associate Director of College Counseling and Director of our Community and Multicultural Development Office, affectionately known as CAMD. Uh, we are super excited to have Jay with us here on campus. He is one of our plenary speakers for our Stand Up Symposium, thinking about how we as educators and administrators and adults can support the work of our students who are looking to be more engaged and more involved and to be active and global citizens. Um, Jay is a vlogger, a cultural commentator, hip-hop DJ extraordinaire, and um, many other things that we'll dig into um, for our podcast. But I think the place where I want to start knowing that this is a is a conference to think about how we can support student activism is maybe to go back to when you were in high school and talk about whether you were engaged in activist work and if so what did that look like for you yeah well i went to a very elite private school in new york city the fieldston school um which is known as sort of a hotbed hotbed of liberal uh rich white progressivism i guess um, and I definitely grew up in a family that was very political and activist oriented. So I think I had that instilled in me already coming to Fieldston. Um, my experience at Fieldston, I don't know how much that necessarily politicized me. I think it gave me a lot of insight into different levels of privilege and how that informs the way we inhabit space and create community and uh, treat each other. And another really important formative experience. Right after I left Fieldston, um, I went to college for only one semester and then started working at a group home in Westchester for uh, quote-unquote emotionally disturbed kids who were kids that had had a rough family situation or some other trauma that they had gone through. So that I basically went right from high school into uh, working with kids just a little bit younger than me and got to learn a great deal from them on the other polar opposite of the privilege spectrum. So I think that experience of uh, being on both sides of at least a class divide, if not also cultural, I think uh, gave me a lot to uh, digest in terms of how we can communicate across difference and try to work together to make community. So that's interesting because it makes me think about when I first went to college and I was 
learning all of this new terminology that um, people sort of use sometimes in the activist world or thinking that they are becoming activists. And so we were debunking and deconstructing everything. Um, and I remember going home to, you know, talk to my mom about the things that I was learning. And then she was like, what are you talking about? Um, and then I realized, wait, but her lived experience is actually saying more to me about activism than any of the words that I'd ever <laughs> learned um, or anything that I was being taught. And so it was a real moment um, for me to think about whether I was reproducing all the things that I was actually trying really hard <laughs> to fight against. So I hear that in terms of being in these spaces and trying to figure out what, what is that that line in terms of what we're learning and then what we might be reproducing and who we learn from and who we don't learn from in those instances. Yeah, I think that was a very valuable experience for me, although there are many things I wistfully regret missing out on, not having the college experience, especially just the social campus experience of experiencing that kind of community um, at that age. I think having that real-world lived experience of uh, – breaking through those boundaries of connecting with these kids at the group home gave me a foundation of thinking about how to communicate about concepts that we all need to grapple with in our lives and in how we treat each other without coming to it from an academic lens. I think there's definitely great value in uh, going down the path of theory and academic study of these issues, but it's very easy to spend so much time in a bubble where you assume everyone knows the terminology and the concepts that when it's time to go out in the world and communicate and apply these things, you first of all don't understand that these are rules of thumb that can't be too rigidly applied because we're all complex, contradictory humans. And we miss how much commonality there can be with people who might not know all of the catchphrases and jargon, but their heart is in the right place and they want to learn and they want to be committed to the same principles. So I think that that experience of coming to my understanding outside of an academic setting, although I've always been a pretty fervent autodidact, you know, I've been reading a ton on the side as well. Um, and then my experience of, for the first 10, 15 years of my public career basically having a hip-hop audience and then through especially my video work in the last 10 years developing a sort of social justice activist audience, um, being conscious of trying to communicate to those two separate bubbles, one of which is steeped in a certain kind of jargon and one of which is not, and trying to communicate core concepts that I think we all need to connect with in a way that's true to people who have studied it in an academic setting and is communicable to people who are outside of that. I think that walking that tightrope has allowed my work to reach where I think other people's might not. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I've been thinking a lot about activists and activism as a term and what falls underneath that. Um, and so it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, vlogging and hear you talk a bit about um, other means in which we may not always think about those things falling underneath activism. But I think in the last couple of years, we've really seen that change. Um, so talk to me a little bit about coming into the vlogging scene and that being for you another way to think about engendering an activist spirit. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've been doing radio for over 25 years, and that was basically my window into the experience of having a public voice, being a part of creative community in New York's underground hip-hop scene, and being able to use that voice that hip-hop gave me to speak on the issues I care about 
and that opened up many other opportunities writing for all the hip hop magazines in the 90s then helping to carve out a space for hip hop blogging basically helping to invent that form and build a community there and then like most new media spaces uh hip hop blogging went from a small enough space that you could have really deep community conversation into this cesspool with so many voices competing that you had to rely on shock value to be heard. And I thought it, it reached a point where I didn't find that much valuable conversation there. And right at that point, video blogging was just starting to become a thing. And I found pretty quickly once I experimented with it that people would connect with ideas in that medium in a really deep, intimate way that I didn't find simply from writing the same words on a page or anything like that. And it was a really cool creative challenge, learning that I had to not only find the right words, but also have the right visuals, the right inflection. I learned pretty quickly that I could compose the message exactly how I wanted and have all the words right, but just a certain look on my face or a certain gesticulation would make everyone say, oh, well, he seems smug. And then they wouldn't really connect with the substance of what I was saying. And for me, that having worked in radio and text and other forms, that, that challenge of making so many elements work together to connect in the way I want to connect was really fun. And I found pretty quickly, especially when I moved into talking about other issues like race, it really struck a chord and people had a hunger for it. So I've, I've seen probably all, most, of the videos, including the most recent cat politics video, which <laughs> I'm not a cat person, so at first I was like, what is this? Um, but um, yeah, find somebody, it in- Somebody <laughs> should make a dog answer version. I wonder what that would be like. I'm not sure. I'm not an animal person, I should <laughs> oh, say. Not just a cat person, I'm an animal oh, person. Okay. So it'd be hard for me to imagine what that video looks like. Um, but I thought like, what would never that would never pop into my head um, to think about making a video about cat politics um, to really send a message about the larger like contemporary political moment that we're experiencing. Okay, here's my take on cat politics. There are many things we tell ourselves about our relationship with our cats, but from the point of view of a cat, at the end of the day, we are the government. And the guiding principle of cat politics is that on one level, they live under our absolute authority, but on a deeper level, it is the cat who has elected us for the honor and privilege of serving them, and they are never gonna let us forget it. So I'm also wondering about process for you when you're thinking about you got some things on your mind and you, you have something to say. What is the process for creating a video? Um, it depends. I mean, that latest video about uh, what a cat's political views would be was a product of me just putting an open-ended request for questions from all my social media friends and followers. And I found that that sort of thing can be really liberating because once you've been working in a certain form for a while and you figure out what you're good at, what connects and what doesn't, especially on the internet where you can track to the most minute level how much reaction you got and what kind of reaction. It's easy to get into a rut where you know what connects and gets traffic and you just keep going back to that well, which for me will be looking at the news cycle and mm -hmm. what's sparking the most debate in this 24-hour cycle. Let me make a video about that and get into that conversation which can provide value, I think, but can also be limiting creatively mm -hmm. and takes me out of the zone of just an honest, sincere expression of what I wanted to say or how I would just honestly grapple with the question. So 
picking out that question of what, what do you think are your cat's political views, it was a video I made with no intention of getting traffic, mm-hmm. but turned out to be a video that got a lot of traction mm-hmm. because I think, uh, well, you know, it had a cute cat in it. Yeah. <laughs> cat and, videos and, and cat and, memes and, and, also, and also, I think, uh, I think the extended metaphor of mm-hmm. uh, a cat seeing you as their ultimate authority, but also having elected you to serve them and being an engaged citizen to make sure you're doing right by them. I think that that extended metaphor, I think people found value in that, especially if they are a cat owner. So I I think it's generally I'm looking in the news for something that outrages me enough Mm -hmm. that I can sort of crush that outrage into a diamond and put it into the world and help other people commiserate if they're watching the news and feel outraged by the same mm-hmm. thing. Give them sort of a, a tool that they can use if they're having a frustrating debate. They can just take my video and say, here, watch this. This is, this is my outrage distilled to its purest essence and to sort of take the workload off of everyone else who's feeling the same outrage I am. Yeah, so we, we actually do use some of those videos even here at Andover to think about how we can have some difficult conversations either about what's happening here on our campus and in our community or what's happening in the larger world. For me, the, the cat video, right, regardless of where that inspiration came from, um, just made me think a little bit about, like, there are days when you're reading the news cycle, um, depending on where you fall politically or, you know, how engaged you are, that it can feel pretty overwhelming to just read everything that's coming in. Um, And so I was thinking about, like, wow, we need a little bit more humanity. And there was something about, like, the cat politics video, maybe because, again, like, people love cat and cats memes and things of that sort that... There was like a little bit of like humor and humanity that like sometimes can be missing when you're reading through like news cycles all day that can feel pretty disheartening um, and pretty depressing for a lot of people. Yeah, and I've found that to be the case tenfold since the most recent election. Mm-hmm. Um, this work has always depended on me tracking the news cycle, watching cable news, reading all the political discussion online, um, which has always involved parsing and decoding sort of uh, BS and spin mm-hmm. and gamesmanship. But there's, a, there's an entirely different stress level to mm-hmm. the amount and the type of BS that you have to intake and process now. This is a brazenness. I mean... You, Every politician bends and twists and shifts, mm-hmm. and you have to take things with a grain of salt. But there's the lies that we're being fed on a daily basis now are just so preposterous and blatant and brazen. It's like uh, we're going to lie to you in a way that makes it perfectly clear that we are lying just to rub it in your face that you can't do anything about us lying to you every day. Um, so it, it's... I found it difficult to reconnect. You know, I've been away from really doing the video work. I've been busy with other things. And I'm trying to come back. Like, I feel a sense of responsibility to come back mm-hmm. and contribute, be part of whatever work we're going to be doing. But to fuel that engine by reconnecting with this news cycle, I'm finding really stressful mm-hmm. and difficult. And that's the reason I uh, started incorporating the cat into the videos, because I found that was a support system mm-hmm. I needed. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I, my other cat had passed away last year and Mm -hmm. I didn't realize until I got another cat, how much Mm -hmm. I needed 
even what to most people will seem like a trivial sort of support, yeah. having that support network in the home, having the cat there to hate watch the morning yeah. shows with me, um, <laughs> has been a big step towards just being able to find that balance of self-care and engagement. Um, so, I mean, we'll see as I get back to work again, but I think maybe providing commentary in a more lighthearted way with a bit of the straight-up outrage yeah. mixed in might be where I go from here. I don't know. It's, I think we all kind of have to figure out what, what is our lane from here, on, from here on in. Yeah, so, I mean, I think I've sort of been dancing around the politics <laughs> of, of the moment, um, only because even here in our own community, after the election, we were trying to figure out, okay, what is it that we do the day after for our students? One, to emphasize our values as an institution, um, but also we were trying to walk that line of being a school and not seeming like we were coming down on one side or the other in terms of support for a candidate. Um, but you can't ignore what's happening in your community. And it was clear that there were folks in our community that were feeling hurt and angry for a variety of reasons. Students who were feeling um, also unsafe um, for themselves and for their family members. And so we've really had to think long and hard about how to support them. And, you know, that's actually when I first reached out to you was after the election because our kids wanted to know, like, what do I do now? Um, but they also um, were in a space where they, they were almost like grieving some of them. Um, and then also wanted to do, and, and the emotion of all of it was almost like a little bit too much um, while you're going about the day-to-day of trying to be a student, um, trying to be a friend, trying to be a family member who's away from their family for those of our kids who are boarding, and same for the adults, right? We were trying to be supports for our students, but we also were feeling things, and we're thinking about our family members too. Um, so... Yeah, so what do we tell our young people? Like, you just talked about we're going to have to figure out what what our lane is going to be. And this is what we're trying to help them figure out. So what would you tell our young people? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, on election night, I was at uh, my mom's house. You know, my mom is... uh, around 65 her her uh husband my stepfather warren is 80 years old so it really hit home for me that night watching the results come in with them how such a big part of warren's last years now will be defined by this paul that's been cast over all our lives and on the other end of that there are so many young people who their formative experience now will be uh coming for what from coming from what for a lot of people I think is a time of great hope and optimism to just this cataclysmic sense of setback um, and disillusionment. I, got, I mean, I, I, you know, I grew up in the Reagan era, so I know what it's like to feel like the odds are against you. Um, but I can't imagine, first of all, what it's like to uh, have been coming into your teen years with a black president. I cannot imagine. Uh, you know, what, where, where that place is your understanding of where we are and what's possible. And uh, then to be on the verge of electing the first woman as president um, and to have it all go south in uh, such a shocking, cataclysmic way. I, I was worried that this would be a really daunting, disillusioning thing, uh, similar to what my mom and dad have told me growing up in the 60s um, and seeing the sense of hope that they had back then sort of grind into dust in the 70s. 
Um, but so far, that doesn't seem to be what has happened. Um, you know, there's been a renewed energy and uh, a real hunger for ways to uh, become involved and keep pushing, which I think is demonstrated even by uh, whoever was doing market research for Pepsi-Cola, <laughs> thinking that that was a cool thing to do. Even That was the worst, most ham-fisted thing I've ever seen. But it indicates that that's where the zeitgeist is, that uh, the general impression is the young folks think protest is cool right now. So that, that I think, even there, I see a hopeful sign um, that there's a great deal of energy um, to tap into that we can encourage and try to try to nurture and feed. And I think the most important things to try to convey are, uh, which I'm, I guess I'll try to talk about tomorrow, is that you, you need to have a community that supports you in whatever work you're going to try to do and uh, figure out the tools to make that community healthy of communicating across difference within that community um, and making sure everyone's seen and heard. And knowing that the work to make the world what you believe it needs to be is always going to be slow, lifelong work. It's not defined by great victories. A lot of times what seems like a great moment of progress will be followed by backlash and setbacks. You know, it's the same thing we saw in the 60s, it's the same thing we saw going back to Reconstruction after the Civil War. That's the cycle that history goes through, and you've got to have your eyes on the long game. And uh, keep pushing and keep in mind that the lifelong work of pushing for social progress is on this track, and the game we play every four years of trying to win an election is over here on this track. Um, and that game has a huge effect on the lifelong work we do of trying to make that progress. But we can't rethink everything we're doing in that lifelong work based on getting dealt a bad hand um, in this one instance of the game. Um, we need to keep on pushing. So we were, we were fortunate to have um, Melissa Harris-Perry with us here for um, MLK Day. And one of the last things she said was pretty much like, activist work is not like sexy in the way that like sometimes people try to make it seem that it is really hard um, especially when you are a young person and you think about other types of social pressures that might exist as you um, want to do the right thing or make change I'm using air quotes but people can't see me in your communities that you get the backlash from your peers at time who don't understand who think you might be too sensitive um, or that it's just a joke and you need to get over it. Um, and so th that is one of the messages that I try to tell our kids all the time. Like we're all in this for the long haul um, and it is going to be messy and hard and there are times where you're going to be really frustrated. But again, we've all got goals in sight and they need to be really clear about what some of those things are. Part of the conference that we're thinking about as well, so we are an independent school and um, you know, we were founded in 1778, yes. Um, and we were a very different school then. And so we're trying to even figure out, can you engender um, activist spirits in places and spaces um, that in some ways might be reproducing some of the things that you actually are trying to fight against? Um, and 
regardless of all of our good intentions as educators and adults here, like, can we be as forward thinking and progressive as we want to be or think we are um, based off of where we're situated, even as a school and the amount of wealth um, that our school has and other types of privileges? Um, So how do you do that? Can you even do that? Thoughts? Uh, can I don't know. Can you do that? Uh, <laughs> We're gonna find out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been thinking back uh, as I was preparing to come here about my experience at Fieldston um, and and working with the kids at the group home. Um, I mean, I think a lot of folks who do good work have come through Fieldston. Uh, you know, it's Gil Scott Heron's alma mater, uh, my friend Joan Morgan, who does great hip hop feminist activism. Um, but I don't know how successful the institution was overall in fostering self-critique. It's a great, academically, a wonderful school. Um, and they definitely do encourage a certain set of values. But I think the default assumption there was this is an oasis of progressivism where we're going to learn how to be progressive out in the world. Once we get out in the world, we're actually going to face those imperfections of racism and sexism and classism. Um, so we're, you know, we're preparing you to start grappling with those things once you leave Fieldston, um, rather than assuming that we are all imperfect and flawed and subject to uh, implicit bias and all sorts of tendencies, just like everyone out there on the other side of this campus. Um, and I think that that would have been a really valuable thing, which I think they're actually doing now. Um, you know, if you watch the news, Fieldston has been at the forefront of uh, trying to have affinity groups and so on. So I think that's that's progress we seem to have made there. Um, there's been a great deal of pushback, I can say, <laughs> being on the, the Fieldston alumni Facebook group, <laughs> where many of the parents are also alumni to send their kids. There's definitely even among liberal parents a lot of resistance to trying to do that work. But I think there are a lot of people in your sphere who are finding ways to to try and do that, which I I believe will start to show effects over time. I mean, I think that I'm pretty sure if you spoke to the kids, this was certainly my experience when I was a kid, um, that the kids are usually ahead of the parents on things like that. And I bet they didn't have the same reflexive pushback that the parents did. Yeah, I mean... I would say even for for our kids here, they're the ones who hold us accountable at every turn. And I'm yeah, like, did you see every the school time? where the the kids from the student high school paper? I tracked did. down the new principal's resume did, and <laughs> realized some things weren't yeah, accurate. The kid, yeah, the kids are all right, that. man. Um, so I I do find the same thing. Like our kids here are definitely sometimes way far ahead of us. Um, and you know, again, tomorrow's all about figuring out how. We can meet them where they are and also um, supporting them in the work that they're doing. Um, So uh, my kids would not be happy if I don't spend time on hip hop while you are here. Um, Because actually I found a lot of them have figured out a way to access what is happening and process it and interrogate it through hip hop. Um, So, you know, going back to when you first started your show, genesis of that and what you wanted to do with your show and what you think you're doing with your show through hip-hop i don't know what do i think (laughs) with the show yeah so i uh when i was 16 years old i got an internship at wbai radio which is a very uh proud notorious left-wing hippie institution dating back to the 60s is where 
Bob Dylan and Abby Hoffman used to hang out. Malcolm X would be up in there. Um, we're part of the Pacifica Network, which is five stations around the country that give sort of progressive left of center outlet for disenfranchised voices. Um, and I grew up uh, with parents who were devoted listeners, and I, I grew up with it as well, um, getting those sort of uh, far left hippie perspectives. Um, and wound up getting an internship there when I was 16 years old, uh, working with a woman named Amy Goodman, who's very well known now for doing Democracy Now! Back then she was doing the local evening news. Um, so that was a really great experience of being around all these people who have all these different sorts of specialized esoteric knowledge and all these experiences to pass on. And after about a year of uh, being there, working with various shows, I also worked with a sort of hip-hop sketch comedy show named Creative Union Collective, and there was a show that was all unreleased Prince music. I was a big Prince fan. Uh, so I got connected to all of my cultural touchstones really quickly and was lucky enough to be there when they figured out they could reach younger people by getting a hip-hop show. They originally wanted to get Karis one to do a show, but he was too uh, busy or flaky. So I put in a proposal. Um, I think either in my junior or senior year of high school, I put the proposal in. And uh, halfway through my senior year of high school, I got to start doing my own hip-hop show, which was something I... I wouldn't even let myself formulate into a dream, but I think on some subconscious level, I always hoped that was what would happen. I was always a devoted, devoted hip-hop fan, coming of age in New York in the 80s, seeing my generation create this incredible form. And there's a particular passion you're going to have for something when everyone in your community has so much pride in this innovative new thing you've invented, but 99.9% .9 of the world does not take it seriously at all, which is something I don't think people below a certain age who like hip-hop will ever really understand how how absurd people thought it was um, that anyone should take hip-hop seriously. It would be as if uh, to tell if I told someone that 20 years from now there will be hip-hop college courses, it would be like telling them uh, there's going to be a Pokemon Go hip-hop course in 10 years or something like that. Um, so I was incredibly excited to get to represent this culture that I was so proud of on the radio. Very quickly got to be a part of New York's underground hip-hop community, give exposure to a lot of my favorite artists coming up, um, be part of an underground radio community that existed back then. Um, a guy named uh, Bobito Garcia became my mentor, who uh, did a great show on Columbia University Station with Stretch Armstrong, um, and just had, had, had a wonderful experience, having been a really introverted, isolated kid um, up until then, being welcomed into, into a community and finding a voice and a place for myself. And finding over time that I could use that space to uh, talk about whatever were the politics or the issues of the day. Um, I was putting in my proposal right at the peak of what people call hip-hop's conscious era um, and was able to try and carry on that tradition. Even as the mainstream sort of moved away from that, we tried to maintain an underground tradition where we focused on showcasing incredible musical creativity first and foremost, but also using this form as a way to uh, give voice to what people were dealing with. And that's basically extended to all the work I've done online and other social issues, um, speaking about politics, that uh, hip-hop tradition of trying to carve out creative community where people's voices and issues get heard. What are you listening to right now? Uh, I mean, 
the things you would expect an older hip hop head to like. Uh, you know, Kendrick Lamar, Anderson Pack, uh, Vic Mensa, Rhapsody, um, Run the Jewels. Uh, there's a my friend Homeboy Sandman has a great record with Aesop Rock that came out a few months ago. Uh, but just so I mean, there's a lot of the stuff that the kids are into. I can connect with and enjoy. You know, I've learned to really appreciate what designers doing. I think he had, like that's you know some of his songs they sort of uh, sound like African folk music at times. He, you know, he takes it to places that I think are more creative than people give credit for, and. I think, you know, a lot of people my age will lament hip-hop having gone wrong, but I think there are so many hip-hops, you know, hip-hop contains such multitudes now compared to when I was growing up. I could go to the Music Factory, which was the record store in Times Square, and there was a wall about this size with maybe 50, 75, 12 inches, and that would be all of the new music that came out that month. Now, of course, every 10 seconds, that many new songs come out from different regions, different countries, different subgenres within the same town. Whatever sort of hip hop you like, there's more chance than ever to cultivate and celebrate that hip hop. And I think, I think it's healthy for each of us to have the hip hop we love and the hip hop we hate. Now, are there messages in the most popular mainstream stuff that uh, I would love to see evolve? Absolutely, and I'm not trying to absolve us of that responsibility. But I think overall, the art form is really healthy now. Yeah. Um, I got some homework to do. I don't know some of those folks. So my, my kids are, our students are always trying to think about, like, can you actually reconcile, like, even thinking about some of these songs with lyrics that you're like, oh, maybe these aren't so great, and, like, being woke at the same time. And I feel like they're always in this, like, dilemma of thinking about, like, oh, man, I like trap music, but I also, like, am, like, down with misogyny and sexism and these other things that, um you might be hearing in some of these songs. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, I mean, I think that's a challenge we face with any popular art we consume, um, which is not to make excuses for hip-hop. I mean, I think we should set a higher standard than we're going to be equally dysfunctional as the rest of the American mainstream. I think we should be trying to clean up our backyard as best we can. But I think that's always going to be a challenge. Um, how much can you listen critically as opposed to uh, just stepping away from it and not supporting it at all. I mean, I think first and foremost, you need to always be listening critically and um, trying to support whatever you think uh, is the most uh, healthy and uh, productive human expression in the music and uh, be vocal about those critiques. I mean, I think that's the more we shift the norms by uh, speaking out about what is or isn't acceptable. I mean, we've seen paradigm shifts in hip hop over the years, in some ways, but not others, which is frustrating sometimes because you'll see uh, the success of someone like Kanye West take us from this very rigid orthodoxy, this sort of the wave that 50 Cent rode um, is, is sort of the last king of the era when you needed to have a really specific street background and have committed these crimes and done these things and have a certain pedigree in order to be a real hip-hop artist. Kanye basically broke that mold and opened up the gates for you to just be a, a regular guy who's a megalomaniac and, uh, and can be a successful artist. Um, so I, you know, I think 
we can support work that opens pathways, but on another level, uh, the way that Kanye talks about women is no different than all of the misogyny that came before. I and mean, you know, we've seen that a few times. Odd Future, really creative, new style. The way they talk about women is the same way that Kanye was, the same way that they were before that, same way the Cool G rap was when I was growing up. So it can definitely be frustrating how persistent um, some things are. I think there has been a bit more shift in terms of the homophobia in the music. Um, yeah, the sexism in particular, and I think that sort of hyper-materialism is still there. Not in the extreme way it was in the shiny suit era. Um, and I think we're still not quite where I'd love to see us in terms of having multiple women on a prominent platform. Um, it's still basically Nikki as the one A-lister. There's a lot of other people doing, there's a lot of other women doing great work, but they're not quite getting to that level, and then they always pit it against each other uh, when they try to get to that level. Um, so, the, yeah, this is a, a rambly answer for a tough question, I guess. But I think there is no right or wrong answer. I think you always have to be listening critically and asking yourself, am I taking the things I like from this and ignoring the things I don't like, or am I normalizing mm -hmm. the toxicity they're spitting by absorbing it this many times, even if I'm telling myself that's not why I like it. You know, I think that's something you have to be mindful of as you engage with it over time. Yeah, and I mean, I also want to be mindful that probably hip hop is the art form that we're like, we point to first when we want to talk about like artistic endeavors that are falling into these trappings. Um, but we don't talk as much about, you know, pop music or rock in the ways of like, wait, there's some really, you know, problematic things that are happening when Justin Bieber is like, what do you mean? Are you saying yes or no? I'm like, wait, let me tell you how consent works. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, so I also want to be mindful of not falling into those trappings of like taking the easy road and pointing just at hip hop, that there are, there are definitely other mediums. Um, oh, um, so I, I'm actually, I'm also thinking about um, technology right now um, and actually thinking about you know, back when you were in high school, like how would you be using the technologies of now um, back then if you had access to those? Oh, it's, it's unimaginable. I mean, our relationship with knowledge and information was so different before we had regular access to the Internet. I mean, the Internet did exist back then, I know, because my grandfather um, on my mother's side was a really impressive early adopter like in the mid-'80s. He had his Texas Instruments computer and the modem that you put the old school phone thing into the cradle and it would send the bleeps and bloops out and you'd get this super slow feed <laughs> before there was any World Wide Web. And he tried to show it to me when I was 12 or 13 in the mid 80s, but I didn't get, oh, what, oh, what do you want me to do with this? Um, so actually, I technically could have been on the Internet <laughs> when I was uh, in high school, but, I didn't, but of course, most of us didn't discover it until later or have really realistic access to it and that meant in so many ways of course your relationship to music involved tracking down these physical objects um, studying what's written on the uh, album cover looking at all the names finding somewhere you can look for the records that have those names on them it was 
a social and physical experience of tracking down that musical knowledge that I think gives you a, a particular relationship with the music and a sense of each piece of work being precious as opposed to being able to just uh, download everything from a genre um, in one afternoon. And there were so many times that I would have an argument with someone. I, uh, you know, I, I had a good friend in the early 90s, actually, um, who didn't believe that Washington, D, Washington D.C. was a place where people actually lived. She thought that uh, D.C. was just where the government was and everyone actually lived in Maryland and Virginia. And I tried to tell you, no, that's, you never heard George Clinton, Chocolate City is a, a city. It's a real city with lots of black people. But because there was no accessible reference point, like neither of us ever won the argument. It just halted yeah. and it was a draw <laughs> because you, you couldn't Google and show her, well, here's D.C. is the population. There, there were so many things like that where... Uh, you didn't have immediate access to knowledge and information. You, we would have had to go to a library and bring a book up from the basement or something like that in order to verify. And now you immediately, at your fingertips, can access one piece of information, and each piece of information opens a wormhole to a million other tangents. Three hours later, you can have 30 browser tabs open and have learned about 100 things you didn't even know you wanted to know about. Um, so I, I can't imagine how I would have used it back then, but I do think it would have been a great benefit to me as someone who was very socially isolated in high school, being able to find communities of like-minded people online, even in my early 20s, um, as I was coming into my own, learning how to have a real social life. Even at that age, the avenues that the internet opened up to become a part of online communities and connect with people that way, I think would have been amazing for me as a teenager. I think it would have allowed, in a lot of ways, a different sense of self and belief that I could connect, as much as people will uh, blame the internet for, for isolating us from each other, which I get what people mean by that. But there are other levels where I think, especially this was a circumstance that a lot of hip-hop fans had. If you lived in Iowa... Back in the 80s, when I was going to the music factory and looking at that, you didn't have the music factory and you couldn't get any of the records on that wall or find anyone who would care about the records on that wall. Now, if you're that kid in Iowa, you can connect. I mean, probably everyone in Iowa is already into it now. <laughs> but if you had the Internet back then, you could have connected with us in New York and had a community. We would send you digital copies of all the music. It's so much easier, whatever your whatever your uh, passion is to find people who share it and find your community. We, I mean, we're trying to find our balance even as a school community to think about uses of technology. And even as it becomes more and more apparent, um, you know, in terms of thinking about tech booms in the future, I think sometimes we also forget that we still have large pockets of communities that actually don't have access. Um, so, you know, we need to be thinking about those things, too, in terms of information flow and who has access to what when there's still pockets of communities that can't get on the Internet. They don't have access to laptops and computers, and they don't have a public library that they can go to in order to access those things as well. Yeah, and then that, I mean, I think that's another reason it's important to have that balance um, of online community and um, I don't want to say in real life because I think everything that happens on the internet is real life but that sort of in-person community and uh, making connections on both levels and I think that's the same thing we need in an activist context is uh, 
seeing the internet as an added set of tools in the toolkit, but not a replacement for the sort of uh, community work we needed to do before. So give us give us some other things in the toolkit that we that we need. Other things in the yeah, toolkit. Yeah, other kit things that we in the toolkit. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I I think an important thing right now is to look for ways to get involved in local politics. Um, I had a friend who ran for city council about ten years ago, and from sort of helping him out, I got to see what the process is on that local level. In New York, it's basically these Democratic clubs, which is kind of a random group of people who are into being a part of the Democratic Party, and they basically select who the candidate is going to be. Um, and that sets in motion um, the process of deciding who our political representatives are on a local level. And I got to see a different version of the same thing about uh, a month ago when my, my cousin, Asia Tingling, became uh, the first third-generation black judge in New York. Um, her father and grandfather are both also judges. And getting to see uh, the community and culture of that branch of government in New York, which is not driven by making yourself a celebrity and sort of selling yourself to the public as a showman who puts on a show of what a good politician would be. It's uh, There's a community of other judges and people in the local Democratic Party who decide who's next in line to be a judge. You know, my cousin was groomed for a long time to take on this position. And that's that's something that we have access to joining and being a part of on a local level and really have an impact on the city and then the state. And once you're at the state level um, in 2020, you're deciding how the entire country gets redistricted, which decides how uh, the Electoral College is going to work in the next uh, national presidential election. So that even in that one way, there's so much you can do by working your way through on a local level and figuring out if you're not going to become directly involved in politics, just how you as a citizen can put pressure on your local representatives, which obviously people have been using things like the Indivisible Handbook uh, to do that with great success. And supporting the other the many smaller community groups that are out there and have been doing this work long before this current administration came in, I think is important. You know, there's been a big influx of support for groups like the ACLU, which is absolutely well-deserved. But I think it's easy to lose sight of all the other smaller local groups that have been working on immigration issues for just one example. So I think looking for ways locally to connect with those grassroots groups um, that could get lost in the shuffle as they continue mm -hmm. doing that work is really good. Yeah, it's, it's almost like um, the current moment we're in, it's not like all of these things actually are new. Right, like we've yeah. been dealing with a lot of these things. Yeah, for a there's long a new, time. there's a new urgency. Right, there, but there it's is not a new struggle. Right, and even even for our students, when we were trying to have conversations about um, immigration, and you know, we we're talking about the Obama administration, I'm like, do yes. you understand how many people were deported underneath the Obama? And they were all surprised yeah. to find these things out. So, um, in on one hand, there is this like new sense of urgency, but we're also not trying to remind myself sometimes that some of these things are not new. And um, again, there are groups that have been working on it and there's this, there's a certain resiliency um, that has been built in many communities to, to think about these things and um, 
creative ways, depending on who who's in office. Yeah, and and yeah, I think it's and yeah, that again, I think is the most important thing we can convey because I know, thinking back to my teenage years, right now always seemed like forever. The most difficult thing to do at that point is really have a sense of how time passes um, and how having the patience to uh, not to simply let time pass, but to keep showing up every day and doing what you can to move forward over time um, can have rewards that are hard to see in the immediate. Um, and I think that's something uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates speaks really well to in his book, that uh, you need to find your sense of purpose in your, and your sense of self in a lifetime of doing the work in community with people who want to do the same work rather than finding your sense of purpose and finishing the work. Because whatever work we want to do to change the world, it's always the sort of work that we spend our lives pushing it forward a certain amount and then pass the baton. It's not the sort of thing that has a finish line. I'm going to, I'm going to take that as some, some good parting words for, for us. And thank you once again for joining us at Phillips. Thank you so much for having me. Every Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover. The show is made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Association, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. You can listen to the show on iTunes. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And uh, also check us out at podcast.andover.edu. I'm Neil Evans.